During the reservation era, the allotment era, the federal government tried to make farmers and ranchers out of the native people. Ranching kind of was second nature. It was taking care of animals and they already knew how to take care of animals as it comes down to love and respect. But we took something and we were successful as a people all over, not just in Blackfeet country. We lived in this landscape with grizzly bear for so long and we did everything to conserve and to protect them as well as the other animals. But if something got out of balance, we were not too soft-hearted to take action and to do what needed to be done. Welcome to the Stories for Action podcast, the Life in the Land series, where we hear from folks that live and work within the landscapes of Montana, gaining perspectives that can be applied globally on what is needed to move forward in a positive relationship with the land and one another in an ever-changing world. These are the interviews from the film series, Life in the Land, in their entirety. I'm your host, Laura Tomov. Today we're speaking with Kristen Kipp of the Blackfeet Nation. I'm Scotty Picani. Kristen is a cattle rancher, a mother, a hunter, an advocate, and so much more. She runs her own cattle operation within her family's ranch outside of Browning, Montana, in the heart of Blackfeet country in northwest Montana. She also works in producer outreach for the Picani Lodge Health Institute, which is a community-driven organization that works to benefit the health of the land and the people of Blackfeet Nation, working on everything from regenerative grazing practices to youth outdoor programs. Kristen also works with the Blackfeet Nation Stock Growers Association, which facilitates resources and outreach to area producers. Kristen spoke with me last summer amongst the towering cottonwood trees and lush river bottom near her home on Cutbank Creek. She speaks about her own connection to the land and stewarding it, as I'm Scapi Picani and as a rancher. She also speaks to her experience living in grizzly bear country and being on the Governor's Grizzly Bear Advisory Council and the need for representation in all forms of advocacy. So I live on the northwestern section of Montana on the Blackfeet Reservation in the heartland of Blackfeet country. Grizz country. We're along the Rocky Mountain Front. We're probably about 10 miles from the actual mountain front and about 40 miles from the Canadian border. This is a Blackfeet homeland. We've been here since time immemorial. And the Blackfeet didn't really winter in this area. They migrated with the buffalo following them. That was their food source. And this was more of a summering area. And the re one of the reasons um, why is it's it's really harsh the weather conditions the rocky mountain front along here is really unique on the other side it's really warm lush lots of moisture and on the other side which is our side it's extreme weather a lot of extreme wind extreme cold really harsh and it's kind of like night and day so our growing season is really short. We have some farmers that do farm, but you really don't see a lot of it until you move out farther east where the weather's a little, um, you know, not as severe. We get a lot of storms. Um, we had a storm earlier this spring, maybe about six weeks ago or so, and we, I think we got like two and a half feet of snow. I think we've had, I've seen snow every single month of the year, except for in July. You have to really take care of the land. Our, win our winters are pretty rough, but I, I don't think I would live any anywhere else. We People live here for a reason. They love it. You know, they love the land. They love the people. And they're connected um, to this place. We're on Cutbank Creek. We're north of Browning. Um, my parents bought this place, I think it was in 1992. And they did just about everything to be able to buy this place. and. They saved and saved and really sacrificed a lot. There's way more to it. A lot of obstacles that they had to overcome with uh, a whole nother um, topic, you know, with systemic racism and the financial institutions. Um, but they were dedicated and they persevered. And it's really been beautiful being able to grow up here and have everything so close, the water, the trees, all, everything. It's um, 
I say it's unique, but you, you really don't see it until you actually go out and experience everything that's here. We're just kind of coming off the mountains where you get into the, some of the rolling hills and just starting to get to the plains. So we're kind of in that transition where we see a lot of wildlife. Um, and we also live along this river bottom, so we have a lot of wildlife traveling through. We have a lot of bears, mostly grizzly bears. I think the first time I saw a black bear here, I didn't know what it was. I was like, what the heck is that? That bear looks so weird. <laughs> and it took me a couple seconds to realize it was a black bear because I've mostly seen grizzlies here. Um, mountain lions, we've had mountain lions come up, um, even like growing up right up to the, the doorstep. Um, even, you know, like all your little species, um, mink, martins, being in the woods. So we have our plains up on top, our hills, and then the river bottoms. We have a really unique micro ecosystem here of all different types of species of animals and even the birds. I remember growing up, that was the first thing that would wake me up. Sometimes, some summers, it would be like a rainforest because once you would wake up, the birds would just go crazy. And I, I live on the family ranch and I live here with my kids and I feel very lucky to be able to call this place home. And with that connection, you know, from as a child, you know, what were some of those concepts that your parents, you know, raised you with of having that connection and, and what they taught you that relationship with the landscape is? You know, I don't really remember my parents sitting us down and having these teaching moments or really talking about certain things, but they really taught by the way that they modeled, the way that they lived. I remember being young and just being out and we would be visiting different pastures and my dad would point out signs of um, healthy grass, good grass, what could sustain animals in a good way. Mostly we're cattle ranchers, so a lot of it had to do with cattle ranching, but he's also huge into wildlife. Both my parents are huge into wildlife. I remember growing up mostly on game meat, um, almost my whole entire childhood, even though we lived on a cattle ranch. And some of the values, you know, um, taking, and even just gathering, gathering berries, gathering plants, learning some of the cultural teachings, um, taking only what you need, leaving more for the animals still out there, the future generations to come. And so it was more than just cattle ranching. I think some of those values that have to do with conservation were really embedded in everything, whether it was hunting, um, cooking, gathering. We gather a lot of berries for our ceremonies, um, a lot of different plants and medicines. And of course, you know, being able to, to provide and to take care of our animals. You, you need to be able to take care of the land. And we want the best for, for not only us and our children, but for the animals and for the land and for the generations to come, we want it to be taken care of. And my parents really helped me see that, um, to look into the future and not just look at what's in front of us, you know, the immediate. And you're now a parent. You know, it's not like you're sitting them down and also having an official conversation about it. It's as you're out there working on the landscape, out there with them and passing these things that they pick up, just how your parents taught you in that way. Um, can you just speak to how important it is for you to, since your kids were born, have them with you as you're going out, whether it's gathering or, you know, running cattle or, um, you know, what are those elements that you you've just brought your kids along and whether it's you know because you had to or but how important that is that they experience that and get that into their blood of, of interacting with the land. So I'm I'm a mother to three of my oldest just turned 13 and I've done just about everything with him you know having him in my backpack while we go hunting it's pretty strenuous hunting with babies and toddlers or little ones one part of it yes I, I had to have my children with me I didn't have somebody that I could depend on for a lot of these things but even if I did have somebody that I could use I thought it was important that my kids be there and see these different things whether it was hunting working cows being out on the land 
and enjoyable things too you know like non-work related things just being out on the land I had such a strong connection to the land I think a lot of people in my generation were like this you would get up and you were out the door and you wouldn't come back until dark you were you know exploring and having fun playing I wanted my kids to have that same connection where they love to be outside and they love the outdoors they loved um, they just had a really strong connection and so I tried to get them out as much as I as I could it makes it for really sometimes it's really difficult sometimes um, it's not as fun or as smooth as it could be but I think it's important to go the extra effort to show them you know this type of lifestyle of whatever it might be but just having that spending that time outside and do you mind we'll go through each of your kids just say something that you see about their personality that comes out when they're outside so my oldest leo he just turned 13 a few weeks ago and i don't think i could keep clothes on him until he was about four he was a wild child he loved to be outside and he's one of those people that they just have a real zest for life long long ago when they used to go you know take baths in the river in the winter time and they started with the babies and they they weren't they weren't as soft as we are today and leo kind of because he spent so much time outside he kind of reminds me of that because how he is you know he a lot of things don't bother him but he spent so much time outside he just keeps blazing through doing his thing and i think if i think about all of the kids the happiest they are is when they're outside aspen she's five she loves animals she loves anything might be an ant or little creatures and she's always exploring and she amazes me because she'll tell me things like these insane species of some random creature she's really she's kind of like a little encyclopedia and my little one, I have a, a baby, a yearling, and she loves being outside. We actually were traveling a few days ago and we stopped off and there was a river nearby and it was time to go. We just took a short break and we were getting load up, loaded up and um, she screamed and threw a fit and she just kept pointing to the river. And she wants to be outside. She doesn't want, she doesn't want to go inside. She already has that connection so strong with the outside world. I've had to work an office job, you know, different times in my life and you have to pay the bills. You got to do what needs to be done. But that's part of the reason that I wanted to ranch is I love being outside. I love even when it's cold, even when it's 20 degrees or 20 below, I love being outside and I wanted something that I could do where I could have that time outside. I'm glad that my children, they're developing their own connection with the outside world and the landscape. Kristen speaks here about her family's ranching operation and her own operation within that. My parents have a ranch here on Cutbank Creek. They run uh, Black Angus, uh, cow-calf pairs. My mom had cows when she was a child. She grew up on a cattle ranch. It goes back a couple generations. And even on my dad's side also, where they were very successful at ranching. Once the reservation era started and there was a big push for native people to become ranchers or farmers. And like my grandpa, he was a really well-known horse trainer and he passed that down to his children. And so my mom has a lot of that knowledge and there's different teachings that have been passed down through the generations because and not just cattle ranching but also with um, like with hunting the different knowledge that families passed down I had cows when we all of us children we got a junior ag loan when we were kids and so we were able to buy cows so I had cows for a while when I was young I made some bad decisions and then um, so I sold all my cattle and then I got back into it when I was an adult and and I also lived in different places around the state. I lived out of state, but I always knew that I wanted to come home. I know that I wanted to live on the landscape. 
but that was my dream was to keep expanding and to be able to leave my regular nine to five or whatever you call it. Or I sacrificed a lot. When my first child was born, you know, I worked all kinds of jobs to, to pay the bills, two to three jobs. And I wanted a lifestyle that I could actually, I could spend quality time with my kids. And I wanted to be able to have the lifestyle that my parents showed me also. I run my cows with my, my parents on the family ranch. My sister, she has cattle also. And we, we winter here at our home place. And my summer pastures are to the north. So my pastures that, you know, the, some of them that I got there, they're smaller fields. There's a lot of work in fencing, repair, maybe water development. So I move cows a lot during the summer. Um, I, I wouldn't do it any other way. You know, I, I do think that I'm, I'm doing the right thing. I'm doing what I want to, but it's, I'm, I'm having to work really hard for every opportunity that comes my way. I was fortunate to witness a day in the life of this constant hard work that both Kristen and her family are, are involved with, day in and day out. Just a glimpse included fencing repairs, developing solar wells, and other projects that, that her parents, Joe and Kathy Kipp, are working on in their pastures, the whole family moving cattle on foot down the highway from summer grounds to winter grounds, cattle vaccinations, fertility checks. This was just a small glimpse at the constant duties. As last summer, most of the West was in a drought, a trend that continues to this year. When I went out with Kristen as she checked on her cattle in the summer pasture she was leasing, she found the minimal water sources there were going dry, and this was only late June. So that means having to make a split decision on where to move cattle to get adequate water, which means a scramble of phone calls and settling up with the kids to handle business. The work is constant and demanding. But as Kristen says, she wouldn't want any other lifestyle. She goes on to share about how these values that have been instilled in her from her upbringing and from working on the land herself, how she puts it into practice in every element of her life. Being Blackfeet, being a Skapipikani, you're taught a lot, you know, all growing up. And in a lot of our stories, our teachings, our Nopi stories, there's the value of conserving you only take what you need you make sure that you leave more for future generations so you you have I think a lot of that in Blackfeet culture just the conservation taking care of the land taking care of the animals it's actually a lot of um, you know management and conservation you can see it in the all the generations before us how they were with the land, with the resource, with the animals. And there is a lot of value and teachings in that. I feel pretty fortunate that my family, my parents were really big advocates of that as well. Not just with gathering or hunting, but having livestock and how we use the land. I, I feel fortunate that those values were passed on to me because I, I think maybe that's not something that's always pushed really hard in agriculture, at least maybe locally, but I think it's really important. I think also utilizing what you have, you know, to the best of your ability, but in a way that is taking care of the land, you're still conserving, you know, whether it's rotating your grazing schedule, protecting our riparian areas. In our river bottom here in our meadow, we have grass that's probably about six and a half feet tall. We have a lot of native grasses. We have such an abundance of animals here because there is the environment, there's the ecosystem here. So with agriculture, you know, it's really fluid the way that you run your business, the way that you manage the, the land, the water, your cattle or other resource that you have, livestock. And so you don't have you know, set amount of days, I'm going to keep my cows on this pasture. I know like my parents, with their grazing, they never fully 100% stocked anything. And my dad explained this to me one time when I was a kid. And he said, you, you always have to leave a little bit of extra. Yes, you can put X amount of cattle on this particular field, but is that the smart thing to do? Is that the 
good thing to do. You want to leave a little bit of a buffer. You want to be safe. You want to take care of the land. It's much more valuable to do that than to fully stock it. And then maybe you have a dry year. You know, all these different factors that can affect the land. And you don't want to run into a situation where your impact on the land is a negative one. You want to keep it positive. You want to be part of it. You know, you want to, you have to work together with it. And I have some projects that I have in mind that I want to do. My mom and my dad, they're doing a lot of things with, with their land where they're doing water development. Um, they're just utilizing the resource in a better way. And there's so many projects, you know, that, they've been working on continually. Once something's done, they're looking, how else can we improve this situation? How can we be better stewards of the land? I think that's really admirable. And I think being in agriculture, you really do have a huge responsibility to be good stewards of the land. And some of your biggest conservationists are going to be ranchers and farmers because they have such a close connection with the land. And I think that's something that sometimes people don't always realize people that are not in agriculture. This next bit from Kristen was in a conversation I was having with her on a different day when she had saddled up her horse for a brief ride and we were standing in the shade of a cottonwood grove. Kristen speaks about the history of cattle ranching within indigenous communities in Montana and the Blackfeet specifically. And just a note to give some brief context of what Kristen mentions regarding allotment. The Blackfeet's homeland since time immemorial was much of what is now Montana and Alberta. Allotment came after the formation of reservations, which for the Blackfeet, reservation locations and boundaries changed several times throughout the 1800s. The Allotment Act of 1887 was one of many efforts by the U.S. government to further reduce their access to land, culture, and community-centric lifeways. Across the country, tribal members were allotted plots of land within their reservations, and all remaining reservation land was opened up for homesteading to others. There are a lot of elements that this allotment interrupted for Indigenous peoples, including the fragmenting of their community-centric lifeways. For the Blackfeet, the allotment took place without tribal consent, and they lost 800,000 acres of their reservation to non-Native homesteading. Tribal members were also subjected to continued practice and policies to assimilate to westernized culture. During the reservation era, the allotment era, the federal government tried to make farmers and ranchers out of the native people. And I would say the farming pretty much failed. We're, for the most part, we live on the Rocky Mountain front. Uh, we have short growing season, harsh climate really rocky soil in a lot of areas. Uh, the people that have been able to be successful with farming, they've really had to work hard to do that. Um, but ranching, being caretakers of livestock animals, kind of was second nature to native people because we're already doing that with um, a variety of things, you know. So like during the starvation winter in the late 1800s, there was a huge amount of people that basically starved to death. And they had their horses and their dogs, but they refused to eat them. And that was something that was said, you know, why didn't they, why didn't they eat their horses or their dogs to survive? And they had too much respect that they couldn't do that. And they had too much love for the animals that had served them, that had taken care of them. And that alone, I think, really tells really tells the relationship there. That's a great example, um, sad, but great example of the relationship between the Blackfeet and their horses, their dogs. And, um, you know, with ranching, it's been several generations since it was introduced and some people did well and some people didn't. There were areas that maybe the families had been allotted land that had no water on it. Maybe they were allotted land that uh, really wasn't great for, for raising livestock. And, but the families or the people that, that were able to, there were quite a few that were very successful. And I think a lot of it came down to, it was taking care of animals and they already knew how to take care of animals. As it 
comes down to love and respect and taking care of your animal, making sure that they have enough um, before you do, making sure that they have everything that they need. We need to have that respect for all living things, for the world that we live in, for our environment. But I think ranching kind of came, I shouldn't say it came easy, because some of it, you know, some of it was new. Living off the buffalo since the beginning, for thousands and thousands of years, to raising domesticated, domesticated cattle, that's a little, you know, that's a little different, but, you know, today, we, that's our largest economy on the reservation is cattle ranching and I think that's why the federal government wanted us to fail but we took something and we were successful as a people we were successful at it and we still are there's a lot of families all over not just in Blackfeet country but Indian country all over that practice that live this way of life. Kristen grew up being closely connected to horses horse culture being embedded within Blackfeet culture Kristen speaks to what that was for her to have to leave that in the years she lived away from home or not having time with all of life's realistic demands. It really killed me. It felt like I lost a piece of me when, um, when I had to take a step back, you know. I'm excited to get back into it and to have that relationship because it's, it is, it's so different, different than like a best friend or like any person or even a dog, you know. I don't really have the words to describe it. It's just one of those things, it's a feeling. It's something that you really can't put words to. And I think anybody that's probably ever loved a horse or ever been on a horse will know what I'm talking about. Yeah. I always said I would never have a four-wheeler or side-by-side. -side. <laughs> I was like, that's not, you know, that'll never be me. But I'll always be on the back of a horse. But sometimes you have to, you know. Yeah, pretty hard to ride with an infant, so I kind of ate my own words there. <laughs> I shift to speaking with Kristen about grizzly bears, historic and present connections with this animal of the Umskapi Pekani, the realities of living in grizzly bear habitat, and her experience being on the governor's grizzly bear advisory council in 2020. So in Blackfeet culture, the grizzly bear is very respected. We hunted a lot of different animals, a lot of different species of, you know, different creatures um, to survive, but the grizzly was not one of them. It's taboo for Blackfeet to eat the bear, to eat bear meat. And there's a lot of other rules that are associated with the grizzly bear. The bear was looked at as our, our brother, a very close relative in all of the animal family, very close brother to the Blackfeet. And that was one of the reasons why we did not hunt um, and eat the bear. So I served on the governor's grizzly bear advisory council. You know, I, I had a lot of my own experience, my own education, knowledge, and also the cultural teachings that I had grown up with, that I had learned. One of the best things was, was finding that deep knowledge and bringing it to modern day, you know, how it's applicable in modern day times. So culturally, like my son, his name is Bear Boy, Gyarusakamapi. My father's name is Bearhead, Gyalutikon. And there are things that they, that, that my, my dad has culturally, ceremonially, that have to do with the, the grizzly. And also in our family for, in his name that he got had been used in gener generations and generations before because it's our custom to, re to pass on names. And so there's a real strong connection to the bear. You know, there is conservation. Culturally, Blackfeet culture, there is a lot of conservation. There's a lot of respect. There's many rules that we or certain people follow but historically there was a lot more than just we don't talk about the bear or we don't hunt the bear we don't do this we don't do that you know if a bear came into camp the bear was killed we lived out on the prairie on the flat 
and it was a real danger for an animal, an apex predator like that, to come. And one thing with, with the grizzlies is they, they are unique, you know, they're very, very smart. And once they learn something, they'll repeat it, you know. And just like we have a lot of cattle depredations, one thing that you see is once a bear gets a taste for that, they don't stop, they continue. And so there was zero tolerance for that really aggressive behavior towards humans back then. The plains used to be full of buffalo. They used to be full of bears. And so it was a really different world for sure. And so everything long ago can't apply to modern times. It just it's, doesn't make sense. It's not the same world. I think it's a really fine balance between conservation and management, especially with an animal like the grizzly bear. You have to have that balance. You know, that was one thing that I always said when I was on the Grizzly Bear Advisory Council. You have to have the balance. You can't just be all about conser conserving um, the grizzly. You can't just be all about managing them. It has to be a balance. Everything all works together. It's not just the grizzly bear that lives on these plains. This is, this is Blackfeet country. I have every right to live here. That's something that I've heard a lot in the last several years. Well, this is grizzly country, you know, maybe you shouldn't have moved here. You know what? The Blackfeet have been here for thousands and thousands of years. We do. Just like everybody else, every other creature, every other species of, of animal, everything, the littlest things to the biggest things, humans, we're just an animal in the, in the circle of it all. We all have a right to live here and to coexist. Coexist is like a dirty word and I don't, I'm not, you know, attaching any, any other meaning to it, but we do. We all have the right to live here with one another and there has to be a way that we can do that in a good way for everybody. As Kristen mentioned, historically, the prairies and foothills of the West had a strong presence of grizzly bears as it wasn't until settlement of the West that drove grizzly higher into the mountains to make that their main habitat. As settlement and Western expansion increased, grizzly bear populations were in severe decline through excessive hunting and the fragmenting of habitats and migration corridors that are necessary for the bear's survival. In the 1970s, grizzly bears were listed under the Endangered Species Act, and under protections of that listing, grizzly numbers have increased though repopulation numbers, interactions, and pressures for the bear vary a great deal for each region where they exist today. I remember when I was a teenager, the population was definitely expanding. Their habitat was the same, but there are more bears, so their, their resource was shrinking, you know, per animal. And we started to see more and more of them come in. I remember my dad and my brother and some, client, some fly fishing clients, my cousin, they were out on Otatsa Creek near Chief Mountain and they were charged by a grizzly bear. And thankfully, everything turned out okay. They had to fire shots. And that was really eye-opening. It was really scary. There hadn't been a whole lot of that in the country, that in this area that I had heard of. So that was like a big eye-opener for me. And then I know there's been other times since then in the years following that there were different family members, different people that I knew that were charged, that were stalked. And I knew that it was an issue. It wasn't like when I was a child, it was changing. The whole, everything was changing. Our relationship, the, the grizzly bear on the landscape, everything about it, you know, was changing. And it wasn't the same, wasn't the same thing that we were dealing with before. And if you would see a bear and they would come towards you, um, they weren't going and minding their own business. We started having a lot of cattle depredations all over. We lead the state, this is not really a proud statistic, but we lead the state with confirmed and probable cattle depredations. So the Blackfeet Reservation is a million and a half acres. We take up roughly 1 50th of the state. That's how large our land base is but yet we have uh, a third of all the cattle depredations. But the big, 
The big eye-opener for me, human safety was becoming an issue. In 2015 was the first time bears started coming right into the yard. And my yard's not very big, you know, so that probably would have been about 40 feet from where my kids were. It had happened a couple times. The kids were playing and the bear would come right up to the fence. And I just had a regular wire fence for cattle. I didn't have uh, anything. Wasn't electrified, nothing. And then we had bears that would, you know, jump into the fence. I'd find bear hair a lot on the fence. And I pretty much, I couldn't let my kids play outside unless I was there. We've made a lot of changes, you know, we have a wood fence now. Um, a lot of things are electrified. Our calving area is now electrified. We're kind of tearing down some of our fences and rebuilding, but that's the goal is that our um, yard will be 100% electrified. And there was one real big incident also that happened. Our barn is a short ways away from our house and my baby was sleeping and I left my seven-year-old. I said, she's sleeping, she should be good. I'm, I had a horse that was had an eye injury and I had to put medicine in his eye like multiple times a day and it was pretty hard to do with a little one. So I left her sleep and I said, if she wakes up for any reason, just pop her in a stroller and come over and um, you know, it'll take me like five minutes, maybe 10 minutes. And on my way back and the dogs were kind of walking with me and I didn't see it. I wasn't at a point to see it but the dogs just went crazy and it made the hair stand up on my on my arms and my body and I knew something was wrong and I could hear my baby crying when I got a little closer and they all ran to the fence and they were um, posted up on different sides of the house. I started running by then and then uh, I knew because the they have a different bark when there's a bear so I knew what it was and I just thought oh I just hope that everything's okay, that he's not out there with the baby. I saw the bear. He had come, he had come even farther than the fence line was. It, he was actually in the driveway, so he was probably like maybe 10 or 15 feet away from the bedroom. When I, I realized when I got closer that they were still inside, the kids were inside. But to me, I thought, oh, what if my son had listened to me and they were outside a seven-year-old and a six-month-old baby. They're just kids, you know, and what could have happened? And it really changed my perspective. When my kids are involved, it really brought out, and I'm, I'm not trying to say that I don't care about my family and my, you know, but when it's your children, it's, it's, it's different. It really awakened not to be, you know, cheesy or cliche or whatever, but really awakened that mama bear in me. And I think if people were in that situation where they had to see, it's such a controversial issue. There's people on all different sides, different perspectives. I think it's really eye-opening to live on the landscape where there are lots of grizzly bears. And, you know, here we do. We live in a very good area for bears. A lot of experience. Um, and also we are a dumping ground for problem bears. They bring them right up here um you know i don't even know how far it is like maybe 15 miles from here or so and if you have a sow that's teaching her young these behaviors and you have generations upon generations since the 70s breeding raising young they're raising their young you have so many different generations of an extremely aggressive bear you know a lot of people say well you know you're, you're a rancher, you're just worried about um, protecting your livelihood or your livestock. You're, you're concerned with the bottom dollar or whatever. You know, yeah, we do need to make a living. With our climate, our harsh climate, our environment, our short growing season, um, you know, that's hard on animals too, to survive in a really cold place, severe winters. Um, but on top of that, you have this depredation and it's, it's been enough for some producers that they've had to go out of business because they cannot make a living. And so it, it is, financially, it is really, um, it can be tough, but the biggest thing is human safety. And I'll say that, you know, over and over until I'm blue in the face, but we need to come to a place where we have some balance. Like I said, we are all in this together.
I've done a lot of talking with different agency department heads, members, and there's still, you know, there's a lot of stuff um, in the court with grizzlies and why, you know, with them being delisted or my wish, I guess, is for, I think people should have to live and see what it's like, the good and the bad. And I know that it can be much more balanced. I know that it doesn't have to be like this, you know. Kristen, her parents, and family use a variety of tools to lower their risk for predator livestock conflict, including having bear dogs and using electric fencing in their calving area. Kristen's dad, Joe Kipp, is the chair of the Blackfeet Nation Stock Growers Association, which focuses much of its work on connecting area producers to information and resources to lower the risk of predator livestock conflict. You can hear more about this in the podcast episode where we speak with both of Kristen's parents, Joe and Kathy Kipp. There's one side of it, the conservation, and there's the management. Some people think that we must do everything to save the grizzly. Well, I'll do anything to save my kids. And I would take a good guess that they would be the same if it came down to their children or their loved ones. It's a complex issue for sure. A lot of heated feelings, heated emotions, no matter who you talk to anywhere on the landscape, in these meetings with the grizzly bear issue. People would think, okay, oh, you're, you're Indian, you're Native American, you must be all about hugging the trees and hugging the bears and all about conservation. And yes, I am, but there has to be balance in when I didn't fit the stereotype of what people wanted me to be, it's like they didn't know what to do with me. But I was able to really look at some of the history and take these old teachings, these old values, these stories and apply it. That was, I think, one of the reasons why we coexisted. We lived in this landscape with grizzly bear for so long was because of our belief, our teaching, the way that we lived, everything with our conservation and our management, not just with the other species, but with the grizzly bear. And we did everything to conserve and to protect them as well as the other animals. But if something got out of balance, we were not too soft-hearted to take action and to do what needed to be done. I think things, I think we're going on a on a track. Everybody's trying to kind of get more on the same page, listen to landowners to see, because for a long time, I think there was a real big gap between people that were living on the landscape and people in um, influential positions. And I think we're going on a good path, but it's going to be a while before we get there. And I, I know that things will get better as far as living in a country, but an area where there are lots of grizzly bears. There's so many more things to it than you would realize. Kristen was a member of the Governor's Grizzly Bear Advisory Council, which was a volunteer council appointed under Governor Bullock. They met over roughly a year in 2020 to collectively come up with recommendations for the Governor's Office and Montana FWP to shape policy and practice in grizzly bear management and conservation. The council members were from areas from around the state where grizzly populations either currently or are projected to inhabit, and ranged from ranchers, and backgrounds and professions ranged from ranchers to conservation professionals to outdoor enthusiasts and more. I was appointed to the Governor's Grizzly Bear Advisory Council. There were so many applicants that had applied, and in the end, I think there was 18 that were chosen from all over the state of Montana. This was under Governor Bullock. It was a citizen council, so this wasn't like experts or anything like that, but it was a citizen council from people that were involved, that were passionate about grizzly bear conservation and management. We had people from all different areas, fields, that were appointed to this council. And I know in the past, they had a wolf advisory council that made decisions 
in a very similar capacity. And we were tasked with finding recommendations to the governor's office and Fish, Wildlife and Parks with their practices to conserve and manage grizzly bears, what we thought as regular everyday citizens. It took a while for us to get going. I think people didn't, were being really respectful. Nobody wanted to step on each other's toes. It was kind of hard to get into it, but um, to get into the really meaty stuff, it was frustrating and sometimes almost painful to have these conversations, the process. It was a really arduous process. But we did, we came up with a really great set of recommendations and a lot of them are being implemented now. And there are some that are still, that are in the works to, um, to be implemented, that they're working on. We had two different criteria, not criteria, but we had two different types of, we had our regular recommendations, which had to be unanimous. So that was really difficult. Um, you might have 17 people or 16, 15, whatever, but you would have an overwhelming majority vote and agree to something, but you might have some that didn't. And so that couldn't be a recommendation. But we did have another section that was like input that didn't make that unanimous decision. I felt really grateful that I had a voice at the table when it came to these conversations because I felt like on the reservation, there's not a lot of people in ad advocacy. About this, the Grizzly Bear Advisory Council, I told everybody that I knew to apply, 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 because I'm not really, not good with words, I'm not good with people. I like the country for a reason. <laughs> um, and I thought, they have to get somebody from our area. I don't care who it is, somebody that has real life experience that knows what it's like, because they have to bring all of our voices to the table. I end up applying at the last minute and then was, you know, I got on. But I felt very grateful to be able to bring that voice because I felt that it was missing. And actually the very first meeting that I went to, they talked about the Blackfeet Reservation being a, and I don't remember the exact words, but it was a success story for grizzly conservation. And all the great things that were happening on the Blackfeet Reservation. And I was like, I actually got up and I was shaking because I'm, I'm not about conflict. I hate conflict. And I was literally shaking like a leaf. And I said, the Blackfeet Reservation is not a success story. I said, we are a story of what not to do. This is, uh, this is something that you look at us and you learn. But I feel very grateful that I was appointed to that, that I was given that opportunity. It opened some doors with advocacy. We were really, our resource here, we're really underfunded. You know, our um, Blackfeet Tribal program that deals with threatened and endangered species. Grizzly bears are only one of the species that they deal with and hugely underfunded and understaffed as are, I think, all of the different fish and wildlife programs in the state. Getting on that council really helped me to speak up. I couldn't just be silent about it. I felt like nobody was listening before, but I think I didn't realize the power of my own voice. And I always depended on somebody else to speak up and to say these important things about whatever it was, whatever it may be. And you know, like my parents, there's other people that are really vocal in our community in agriculture. And thankfully I could just be present and I could be supportive, but I never had to be that person. And it really, you know, there were a lot of changes and our voices were taken seriously. Because having concrete solutions, you know, really help too. You can't just have a problem and say, this is my problem and, and complain about it. You need to be strategic and you need to think, okay, what can I do? Or if I was in this position, what would make this better? What would remedy this? I don't know why we do that as people, individuals, you know, we kind of maybe beat ourselves up or we put ourselves in this little spot, but the power of our voice is extremely powerful, especially when you bring, present it in a way, um, in the right way. To finish out our conversation, I asked Kristen to share with me in her own words about the significance of having the local people on the ground be directly involved with the decision-making of what takes place on that landscape whether it's wildlife management or happenings within the community. 
So I've worked in a variety of settings from a school to working in agriculture, advocacy, grizzly bear um, conservation and management. And one thing that I've seen is in these different geographical areas, in these different communities, a lot of times, many times, if not all the time, the people that are on the ground that are living with these different issues, these different situations, they have a unique perspective that is not always seen or heard. A lot of time the solution is within the community and I think that's really important to listen to. Thank you so much to Kristen Kipp for speaking with us. I know it's a big ask for a rancher and a mother to take time out of their day, so it's very much appreciated. You can find links in this episode's show notes to find more info on Pecani Lodge Health Institute, Blackfeet Nation Stock Growers Association, and the Governor's Grizzly Bear Advisory Council. Pecani Lodge Health Institute and Blackfeet Nation Stock Growers Association are also on Facebook and Instagram and they share information and events with the Blackfeet community, including connecting producers to resources for their own operations. This episode was co-produced by Leilani Upham of Iron Shield Creative, which fosters the natural world and human connection through indigenous storytelling in Montana. Find out more at ironshieldcreative.com, and they're also on Facebook and Instagram. Thank you to Peyton Butler for editing assistance on this episode. Be sure to check out the other four podcast episodes featuring voices from the Blackfeet Nation, as well as the Life in the Land film episode featuring these perspectives. You can find the entirety of the Life in the Land project at lifeintheland.org with films and podcasts from four regions of Montana. Thank you all so much for listening. This episode was recorded on the homelands of the Amskapi Pekani Blackfeet Nation, who interacted with and stewarded these lands for thousands of years. You can follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Stories for Action and learn about all of our work at storiesforaction.org. You can browse inspiring stories from others or submit your own for us to share. Thank you all for listening and for being a part of our community, where our mission is to use the power of storytelling to share human connection and advance a thriving planet for all. The entirety of the Life in the Land project is made possible completely through donation support We'd like to thank the following generous supporters, Crocus Foundation, Bioregions International Fund, Montana Forest Collaboration Network, the Jim Scott Family, Marina Weatherly, Montana DEQ's Abandoned Mindlands Program, Montana Conservation Corps, Berg Conservancy of the Rockies, Winna Aces, the Milton Ranch, Northern Great Plains Joint Venture, Montana Land Reliance, Joan and Cliff Montaigne, and additional support from Heart of the Rockies, Montana Watershed Coordination Council, Rancher Stewardship Alliance, Lower Clark Park Watershed Group, Big Hole Watershed Committee, Bill Long and Billy Miller, Gary Witted, Arthur Lubis, Rodney Fry, Chris Boyer, Gary Burnett, Daniel Beal and Julia Becker, Tom Palmer, Chris King, the Mannix Brothers Ranch, Ann Schrader, and a special thank you to the Common Ground Project. You can support future Life in the Land work with a tax-deductible contribution at lifeintheland.org.